0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. On News Talk
1: really really rammed show uh, coming up so let's get straight into um, our review of what's in this morning's newspapers uh, we'll start with the Irish Mail on Sunday which tells us that the coalition plans to buy an election with giveaways uh, the stage is set for an early general election in autumn of next year following a giveaway budget to buy voter support the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal the coalition has until spring 25 to call time on its term in office but the Taoiseach Leo indicated this week that he doesn't want to go to the polls in the winter and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael ministers expressed strong backing this weekend for an earlier election Election in September or October 24 off the back of a bumper budget. Fianna Fáil Junior Minister Niall Collins told the Mail on Sunday It is my strong view that we should hold a budget in October and then go straight to the polls. The government will have pretty much served its full term by then and it will have delivered its last budget. We hope, should the finances permit to deliver two more budgets like the last one which is one of the best received by the public I've ever seen in my time in politics and for me that would be the sensible thing to do to deliver our budget and then put our record to the electorate. The only thing about that is and not to immediately get into the, the territory of criticising front page papers straight away but that if you run to the public immediately having announced the budget you haven't actually legislated to implement the budget uh, and sometimes people forget that what you announce on budget day is not just immediate that you have to go and pass laws to, to give back into it as well so I suspect that if people wanted to immediately pull the plug or get into the oars in the night of the budget they'd find themselves with a few more issues uh, than they might have anticipated uh, the front page of the business post commercial property market could lose 10 billion in value this year. Uh, Up to 10 billion euro could be wiped off the value of commercial property in Ireland this year due to rising interest rates and weakening demand. Market analysts are projecting that commercial property values across retail, industrial, logistics, office and residential units will fall between 10 and 20% this year in response to the changing economic environment. And with more than 50 billion worth of professionally managed investment property in Ireland at the end of last year, the expected downturn in commercial property means between 5 and 10 billion wiped off the overall value of the market uh, this year. This comes as Philip Lane Chief Economist at the ECB warning last week that interest rates were going to rise into restrictive territory uh, this year. The three main property investment funds in Ireland, controlled by Bank of Ireland, Aviva and Irish Life, have booked multiple write-downs over recent months as the market begins to adjust. Also on the front page of the Business Post uh, Google's employees in Ireland will learn within weeks if they have lost their jobs as part of the tech giant's plans to cut its global workforce by 12,000 it's understood that the US tech company which employs more than 8,000 people in Ireland between full-time staff and contractors will carry out an assessment on its Irish operations to assess the level of job cuts here. Um, One would think given the scale of the Dublin office as part of their Google Google and Alphabet's global workforce there will be some uh, significant uh, numbers cut back there. Uh, And also on the front page of the Business Post the HS former head of digital transformation who resigned last weekend has said that bad actors and blockers need to be removed before the crisis in the health service can end Uh, speaking to the business post Martin Curley says he believes it was better to work externally to build support for a transformation of the health service using existing technologies and expertise in academia, business and medicine he believes that the situation became personally intolerable but his resignation was not a quitting decision. It is a better path, he tells the Business Post this weekend. Big interview with him inside the pages. Uh, the front page of The Sunday Independent has a photograph of Mick O'Dwyer and his new bride, Geraldine McGur. That's Mick O'Dwyer. Yes, that's Mick O'Dwyer, the legendary Kerry footballer and manager uh, who is 86, uh, shortly its turn 87, uh, who got married on Friday to his long-time partner, Geraldine McGurr from County Toronto. Congratulations to them. Uh, the front page story on the Cindo concerns the student council at Wilson's Hospital School in Multifarnham County, Westmeath. They have written a letter uh, to the teacher Enoch Burke expressing concerns about his ongoing attendance at the school uh, since his release from Mountjoy Prison. Uh, the letter which a member of the pupil's body tried to hand to Mr. Burke on January the 13th that's Friday of the week before last um, outlined a number of concerns that students had about his presence at the school they included fears from the LGBTQ students that Mr. Burke would say something harmful to gain publicity according to the letter Um, and also on the front page of the Sunday Independent Pascal Donahue declared significantly less spending on posters in the 2020 general election than in any of his other campaigns this revelation comes amid ongoing controversy over the TD's election expenses and his relationship with the businessman michael stone who helped to pay for his posters to be erected in the 2016 election campaign Uh, and finally for now the front page of the sunday times Two stories there. Um, On the sidebar is the news that hundreds of Irish citizens, including prominent members of Sinn Féin, some Republican paramilitaries and organised crime figures, appear on a leak of names from a secret US enhanced screening database. This is effectively a database of people who are subject to enhanced security screening and enhanced security measures on their way into uh, the United States. And one of the people on that list uh, is the former Sinn Féin president, Gerry Adams. Um, The main story on the Sunday Times, and this is where we're going to start our review of the papers uh, in just a second, concerns the use of artificial intelligence in writing college essays and the fact that it's becoming an increasingly prominent concern uh, among academics across the country Bo Donnelly writes this morning that universities across the country are in a race to prevent the game-changing artificial intelligence programme ChatGPT from setting off a widespread cheating scandal Uh, colleges worldwide are restructuring some courses and taking pre measures against the latest iteration of generative AI which was launched last November it's a sophisticated programme which if you're not familiar with it uh, generates comprehensive and nuanced written responses to questions. and now Ireland's higher education standards watchdog is to warn universities about the risks that it poses. Um, that's the front page story of the Sunday Times and we will start with that uh, when we go through the papers with Aideen Finnegan, who's an audio producer for The Irish Times and the presenter of the How to Pivot podcast, and uh, with Gina London, who's a former CNN correspondent, columnist with Sunday Independent and a communication specialist. Uh, good morning to you both. Um, Gina, th- chat GPT. If people aren't familiar with it, it's very, very sophisticated where the the sign up process only takes a couple of seconds. And then you can say, write me a 1000 word essay about the risk of AI in cheating, for example, (laughs) and it will write you something pretty decent. Uh, And to be fair, it is a reasonable concern for colleges that because it seems to be a unique output each time, it's almost impossible to tell whether it's plagiarism. And therefore, you'll have people putting in essays that they nor anyone else has ever, in fact, written.
0: Hey, Gavin, and good morning. Yes, this is the ongoing race of regulators, academics, pick your entity that is trying to safeguard its users against the ongoing March sprint of technology and so chat gpd in particular has this advanced level of ability to as you described it if you ask it a generic question it's going to give you a credible answer now what it's not going to do but before i get into what it's not going to do and its limitations let's talk about the reactions as you indicated as you were reviewing so well as you always do thank you very welcome the the, the impact. So already in New York, for example, all the, the whole New York Department of Education has banned it from any of its networks. It's the latest iteration of this kind of technology that is taking people really giving them pause, because there's already a growing list of 100 sites that provide ways to cheat, and this is the latest, but it's also one of the most technological, technologically savvy. So here's the thing. What it can't do is cite references. What it can't do is make footnotes. What it doesn't do is do a lot of the things that now, let's say to academia, should be called upon in order to offset this, which, for example, as the article goes on to share, in Australia, one of the measures they're taking is going back to old school. More pen and paper types of exams and less essays that are written at home on your laptop that can be subject to all sorts of different ways to enhance from the little lovely things that Grammarly does as an app to Mm. help you make your grammar better to things that are full on plagiarism or just not your content. Has it been researched by you? Another thing, of course, with my own personal Background and, and expertise. I would be encouraging universities to use more presentations, more multimedia vis- video, so make it less about m- stuff that's m- been written down. Make about stuff that's written that you can be using technology and y- about your own individual creativity <laughs> and the way that you can express yourself around oh, well, the things that you're researching and studying and supposed to have an opinion or at least be able to be conversant about.
1: I, mean, I guess the, the concern there, though, is that if, if it were true that presentations would be a better or more wholesome way or a more useful way to impart an idea on a college audience, then... The argument would be they probably would have been doing it already, but that if they're still relying on essays, no, no. they think they're the best no, way of it doing it. it depends
0: on the academic institution. For example, when I lived in Italy, every single Italian graduate they have an, a more heavily input on the way that they do their oral presentations and their oral dissertations, and the way that that's much more heavily stacked than it is mm. any kind of written PhD academic sort of thing. So there's just a matter about finding reevaluating the way that you do your evaluations and don't get me started on the leaving cert. (laughs) Uh,
1: One of the main concerns uh, it says here is the increasing availability of AI generated essays which can be easily purchased online. These essays are often generated using advanced algorithms that can create highly sophisticated and coherent text uh, which makes it difficult to distinguish them from essays written by humans. This is a major problem for educators as this becomes increasingly difficult to detect and deter plagiarism and it undermines the value of the educational process. Uh, That is not an extract from the Sunday Times. That is the second paragraph of an essay produced by (laughs) AI (laughs) while we were talking here when I asked it to write a thousand word essay about the threat of AI being used for academic essays
2: which kind of proves the
1: point really doesn't it
3: it does you know what the thing about academia is you were saying there that wouldn't they do this stuff already my sense is that there are a lot of target institutions that haven't changed their processes in a long time and (laughs) people are very slow to change and this is a completely disruptive technology and I agree with Gina like it it definitely has the ability to enhance learning in lots of ways but the thing about ChatGPT is what people might know is that it doesn't scour the web for results. It's it's been trained by developers on a on a data set, so it's been, you know, it's 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 a language model that has been taught how to to look this stuff up based on. So I think if you were to look up something from twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three, it yeah. might be in there. You know, mm. if there was the war in Ukraine, for instance, I'm not sure. I haven't checked it recently, but you would need to know, you would need to know how to uh, to, to to ask a question. You know, and I'm sure there's going to be lots of, of students who just put in the exam question or put in the assignment yeah. question and that there's going to be some duplication there well, that you're going to, to be able to pick up. Yeah,
1: on. and I suppose that that's probably the, the, the biggest question, really, because if it produces duplicate answers every time, if you have uh, 10 people who were all given the same exam question, they all throw it into to chat, chat GPT. If it gives you exactly the same output every time, then you know something is wrong. But I think that the prospect is that it's so sophisticated. It might be able to give you a unique output each time where they're all kind of broadly, formulaically the same, but yeah. the language is different every time. And you don't want to have
0: to put on some professor or instructor the, the duty of going through and checking every single thing. Are these words similar from yeah. student one to student two? Mm. And are these, is this a, does this look like it's been... But the, again, the impetus, the bottom line is technology is only going to get better. And so that makes the responsibility for the educators and the people who are working with students and the students themselves to find other ways to demonstrate their knowledge, to demonstrate exactly that they can talk about this stuff and that they can... (sighs) Find ways to yeah. demonstrate that they're learning. That because you're never going to ke- you're never going to catch up. It's just simply yeah. you're not fast enough. Regulators and academics have demonstrated this time and time yeah. again.
1: I know there is already software called Turnitin that a lot of colleges use. Um, Mrs. Gav is an academic, so I'm fully familiar with uh, her uh, extolling its virtues. Um, that um, it basically it, it is an automatic plagiarism thing where it checks all the wording that you've done and it checks that um, there isn't already something else that's substantially uh, similar to it. It already has its nuances because sometimes, then, if you're including citations, then it might say, "Ah, oh, that citation appears so many other places. That's plagiarism." When in fact, it's just citation, which is a difficult thing to get around. Um, but I imagine this is going to be something we're going to be hearing more and more about in weeks to come. Um, inside the Sunday Times, there is another separate piece about. Um, some of the developments of people being exposed to um, the internet on a 24-7 basis and it particularly concerns, and I should warn people that we're going to be discussing some, some fairly mature or possibly adult topics, so maybe now might be a time to um, switch channels for a couple of seconds if there's some um, sensitive ears listening. There's a piece about uh, the concerns of the views of the birds and the bees among 15 and 16 year olds, uh, given that they are now... Basically, we're, we're going through the first generation of teenagers now who have had saturation access to the Internet uh, throughout all of their formative years. And that includes having basically on-demand access to online pornography. Uh, and, Adrian, there's a particularly worrying opening to this piece by Bo Donnelly on page 10, um, where t- uh, transition year students are now asked what they believe is expected of them when they start having sex. And the answers are, are pretty unsettling.
3: Very uniformly the same, which is what was alarming and um, very unsettling, as you said. So some of the things that the the boys would say they are expected to be dominant, should be aggressive, choking, slapping, throwing their partner around, demand oral sex, etc. And that the girls say they have to be submissive. They should do what their partner wants, that like choking, slapping, oral and anal sex are, you know, normal and that they they should be providing it on demand and you know i i feel very strongly about this because this article is very unsettling reading if you pick up the sunday times today it's on page 10 and really it's because we are handing over the the next generation sex education to porn which is not real Mm. it's like it's like saying you know uh The Fast and the Furious is regular driving. You know what I mean? My
1: my, my analogy is usually that WWE is healthy conflict resolution. (laughs) That's not how you sort of you deal with your beefs. Yes. And the
3: problem is I think there are so many and and this is Gavin you and I probably uh, went through the same um, sexual education curriculum in school which was very, very fear based and it was basically don't do it and if you do do it you have to use contraception or you will in the case of women, get pregnant or otherwise you'll get a, a HIV and mm. you will end up dying. And so that is not a healthy way to... So I think this generation has a lot of hang-ups mm. that to be able to pass on healthy sex education is going to be very challenging for them. And what I really fear is, like what I, what I feel very passionately about is that it's just about... Opening a dialogue. So my sister and I, we both have very young children and we're not at that stage yet, but we're already trying to name their body parts and not shy away from, you know, in the the bath. We want, you know, want you to wash your penis, wash your vulva, whatever, and name those parts and then make sure that there's a dialogue going forward that they can ask when they have questions or if Mm. they've seen something they're afraid of. Because I think lots of people have seen porn when they were younger, really freaked them out. And they had no one to talk to about it. And then maybe, you know, who knows what, what damage that that later caused. And, you know, we've got to talk about how. Like Actually, I produced an episode of the Women's Podcast for The Irish Times the other week when we had Sally Hughes on, who is a very well-known journalist. Yeah. And she was saying about talking to her teenage boys. She was saying that she had a conversation with them about how when they sleep with someone, that girl is probably going to have pubic hair. Her boobs will move around when, you know, they'll jiggle. They won't stay still yeah. like, you know, they um, she will have an expectation yeah. that it's vaginal sex and not anal sex. Yeah. And to have these conversations.
1: It's it, like it's really startling that those are things that you'd have to clarify for people, but that they've been so conditioned by the artificial presentation that they see on the screen in their pockets that actually when 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 they have they're their first Real world experiences—that would be totally foreign to
3: them. There so many other um, media and content that they consume that we have to remind them that isn't real. Like yeah. even I have to remind my daughter, Peppa Pig isn't a real girl. Sorry to yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. Burst I hope that not for anybody because
1: yeah. I, I don't want that bubble burst. <laughs> She's a cartoon. She's
3: not.
0: I'm really <laughs> disappointed. But
3: what I'm really fearful of is there will be an attempt to redesign sexual education in Irish schools. There will be a pushback. It will be seen as promoting X, Y, and Z. There's already this culture war being stoked about whether we should be learning about transgenderism and. School. Yeah, And that's my fear around this. There
0: needs to be more. The counterbalance to build on, on what Aideen was say, saying, and as my daughter's 15 and is, and is dating now, the counterbalance of the onslaught, and let's face it, parents who are out there thinking, I'm not going to get my children a phone, I'm going to protect them, I'm going to put everything, every single stop. Y- you're not going to. Mm. If, a, if a teenager wants to find it, they're going to find it. And so, what we do on that, from an educator standpoint, and from a communi- from a parent communication standpoint, is like you were saying, Adina, starting at a young age, but it's not too late. It's not too soon. Communicate more. Talk more, and not just talk about the this point. Go, the, slot A goes into slot B, and or whatever, but talk about. Respect. Talk about these abstract concepts that need to have discussions about so kindness. L- l- less about the, the well, about the mechanics and more about the mechanics as well, too. But I think part of the conversation is that trust that you need to build with your your child or your student that they can go to you and that it's not going to be a shameful place or an embarrassing place or something where they are getting only their mm. information from the online or from their friends because other fifteen-year-olds don't know what other grown-ups would know and don't have the same level of experience. So keeping the conversation open and honest and supportive and encouraging that it can be a wonderful thing at the right time with the emotional context as well. That's really left out of course from any kind of porn. There's not an emotional context yeah. to, to this it's just transactional as a comedian once said a grown up comedian that the first one minute of porn that he would watch really made him want to feel horny and want to have sex and then the next minute made him never want to have sex ever <laughs>
1: again um, This may be a perspective that I, I, in truth I don't know whether you have because obviously your upbringing was not in this part of the world but sometimes I wonder whether the parents of kids who are teens today who were born and raised in Ireland and maybe who still have the last lingering bit of Catholic guilt or or their formative version of sex education I still was,
0: imprinted on their minds. I was raised in evangelical Midwest United States okay, of well America then. so let's not even get okay. started oh, with oh, what well, well. bringing. When I started my period my mother handed me a book called Your Body, God's Temple. And that was as far as the discussion went. Okay. And mom, I still love you, you're fantastic but we've worked past that. All and right. that's the point, you've got to recognise the lacking In what you were brought up with Uh. and understand that the best way to give someone encouragement and a healthy attitude towards sex which I mean if we're on the planet that's how we came Mm. and so let's get (laughs) honest about it and open about it and and get realistic expectations and and realistic demands on both sides of how Mm. things should be and and to make it be something that's that's wonderful and not dirty and not all of this sorts of yeah. stuff.
1: I mean, the, the question obviously arises then. and It's good that you can empathise with the sort of upbringing that a lot of teenage parents <laughs> might have had in this part I of the do. world. Um, is whether you think parents are open-eyed enough to understand that when their teenage kid has a smartphone, that they've got access to the largest stash of pornography that's ever existed in the history of humankind, and that they're going to be exposed to it, and that's going to influence their mores above and beyond any one isolated conversation that they're ever going to have with mommy and Daddy about the birds and the bees.
0: If there's someone out there right now listening who doesn't think that that is available to their kids, then here's the announcement. It is... But the other thing to start teaching your kids right away is that you have a choice. You don't have to watch... You don't have to watch it. You don't have to share in this kind of conversation with your friends. Boy or girl or whatever, as a human being, you can talk about sexuality in a mm. different way. And that's up to you. And it, and by the way, a lot of teenagers don't want to talk about it like that. And even though this is alarming and this article is worth reading, it's also, I think, important to know that I don't think that means that every single kid out there is watching porn every single second mm. of the day mm. um, a
1: couple of texts in about this topic one simply says that if you're not mature enough to talk about sex then you're not mature enough to be having sex and somebody else says and I, I don't know whether this is advice that everyone thinks is, can be heeded but um, this person says the advice since smartphones were invented was don't give them to under 16s why on earth parents ignored this clear sensible warning is a puzzling it doesn't question doesn't
3: matter their friends will have a smartphone it's
0: a lovely idea but under you're going to have yeah. your, your kids are going to have a, a smartphone by the time you're mm. asking too much you, you're 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 not going to be able to prevent your kid from having. And frankly, you know what? There's some social media apps that are good for kids to have and be able to talk with one another mm. when they're and, and it, kids that are too isolated from having a smartphone yeah. they're going to start to feel like they're not part of the tribe and there's going to be some social impact on that let's let's face that as well so ah. it's more about having some caring control and discussion and communication than it is keeping things under lock and key which just makes it that much more interesting sure. um,
1: One other text about our first topic about plagiarism and uh, whether you need to take to other types of learning and teaching in, in colleges um, John and from Y says good morning uh, Good morning to you John uh, With the greatest respect to your learned guest Gina uh, My daughter is studying business at UL presently And is doing very well As she's an extremely clever young lady And that's not just dad talking Her results do bear this out My point is that she's an extremely shy young lady And that if she had to stand up And present her work orally to an audience It would put her at a disadvantage to her fellow students Who might be more outgoing and confident Thank you for covering this important subject
0: Oh that's fantastic John And I can say as someone who's who works with Tens of thousands of people from all walks of life and self-described as introverts. Actually, the introverts are the ones who can be the best presenters because they don't go on and on and on. They can actually prepare. They can become very thoughtful in their presentations. They don't have to be theatrical performers, but they can, even in a one-on-one quiet situation, share their knowledge. And that is a fantastic skill to help anyone Develop,
1: uh, and that is the voice of someone who literally does that for a living. Uh, so maybe take take her word as, as kosher on that. Eleven thirty one this morning on the record. Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk five three one zero six. Number for your text on the record. NT on Twitter. Um, it was around about this time yesterday uh, that Gardi were responding to a call about dangerous driving at Godover's Retail Park in Ballymun when a car was driven at, at speed before colliding with a car and a bollard, a male Garda was injured after being attacked while arresting a man. It appears that the Garda, who was trying to arrest the assailant in this case, was bitten in the attack and sustained serious injuries to his hand and fingers. Antoinette Cunningham from the Association of Garda Superintendents and Inspectors uh, is with me on the line. Um, Antoinette, thank you very much for, for joining us uh, this morning. Um, how common are, are issues as grave as this on the front line for members of the force? Yeah,
2: good morning, Gavin. And regrettably, they've become all too common. And I think what we saw yesterday was how a routine call can end up in the serious assault of a garden member. And that's very, very regrettable. And uh, it's a serious injury. And um, that's the dangers that we face and increasingly so.
1: Um, is there anything that could be done as a, I, I'm sort of regretful to, or regretting using the phrase silver bullet already in my mind, but is, is there any kind of immediate one size fits all thing that needs to change about frontline policing that could help people be better um, prepared for this or are better able to ward it off? Or is this merely a, for want of a more humane way of putting it, is this something of an occupational hazard?
2: Yeah, I think there's a real danger um, of when serious assaults with guardy become sort of normalized, Gavin. And that's why I think condemnation of this type of incident is really important. Um, routine calls can't always be ending in a serious assault of members. And unfortunately for us, we've seen an increase in the amount of assaults on Gardaí in recent years. Quite a sharp increase. And so something has to change. Uh, I don't believe there's a singular thing that can change. But you do know there is a recruitment uh, crisis and a retention crisis in on and that's something that's going to have to be addressed and addressed very quickly.
1: Um, I see your your colleagues in the GRA yesterday pointed out that there's been 4,000 uh, incidents of uh, colleagues being assaulted in the course of duty since 2016. And in the last year alone, and this statistic that might really surprise people, 280 attacks on members uh, amount to very serious assaults resulting in head injuries and broken bones. Do you think people really appreciate the, the risks that you face on the front line?
2: Well, I do think we have the support of large members of the community who are very, very decent uh, to Angarda Siakana. But unfortunately incidents like this when they happen seem to be very serious. And deterrents are hugely important, Gavin. Uh, We have been calling for some time for mandatory sentences for people who assault emergency workers in the course of their duty. Uh, We don't have mandatory sentences at the moment and there has to be deterrents. And if there aren't deterrents and people walk away with suspended sentence for assaulting Gardaí like we have seen then that is not a, an appropriate deterrent. And so mandatory sentencing is something that we will continue to pursue.
1: What would you say to people who have some reservations about there being a stiffer sentence for attacks on emergency workers than on any other member of society who might take that more egalitarian approach and say an assault on one should be no, no more or no better uh, punished than an assault on anyone else?
2: Would you like to think the majority of the community support what emergency workers are trying to do? By the very nature of the blue light service, it means that they are there acting already in a crisis situation. And to think that in, within that crisis that they're responding to, they then become victims of assault. assault. I think society would largely be intolerant of that.
1: Uh, finally, Antoinette, and I don't know whether this is anything you might have information on, but can you give us any update or do you have any information on, on how this member of the force is doing at the moment?
2: Well, look, the members' injuries are serious, as we said, but thankfully not life-threatening. Obviously, we send our good wishes to him and his family, and our thoughts remain foremost around that at this time.
1: Uh, Antoinette thanks for joining us this morning Antoinette Cunningham is the General Secretary of the AGSI talking to us in News Talk about that incident in Ballymoney yesterday that takes us up to 11.35 this morning a few texts still coming in about the uh, situation regarding um, assessment approaches in university Uh, Mike texts in he says that he's a lecturer in aforementioned old-fashioned university uh, (laughs) Trinity College coughing under his text Uh, he says that he personally puts huge time into considering assessment methods and make sure that they're varied to students' learning needs and abilities presentations, blogs videos and yes the occasion He says the bashing of academic teaching is lazy and out of touch of what happens in practice. And Conrad in Calorglan has been in touch with a very interesting question. Um, If the text from an AI script is fed back into the said AI, will the AI program be able to identify itself as the author? of that rather than as uh, that being students work that's a that, that requires
0: a level of self-awareness from chat chatbot that I'm not sure actually a, exists that's a great question it'd be great to be able to have be that professor then to answer the other person's comment yeah. and say just put it back into the AI say did you write this yeah. and it says yes then okay <laughs> off
1: yeah. we go or this is or, or maybe it's got such a sufficiently nuanced view of things and go this bears the hallmark of AI <laughs> but I can't say for certain uh, so. and David has also been in touch by the way on Twitter he says it was a really interesting chat about uh, our previous chat before the break about um, sex education he says that he's a nurse specialised in sexual health and he regularly sees the deficits in information across all ages and the really specific needs of LGBTQ plus people mm. uh, often being completely ignored. Uh, thank you for getting in touch David. Do keep your texts coming. Uh, 53106 the number for your text on the record NT is our hashtag. Um, there is quite a lot as you might expect written across today's Sunday papers about uh, what now appears to be called uh, poster gate. Um, mm. I'm not sure if I agree with, with the gating of all oh, of this but I certainly agree that it's something which warrants uh, a lot of coverage and certainly a lot of scrutiny um, there is a lot of analysis across the papers um, about the ongoing controversy surrounding Pascal Donoghue the funding of successive general election campaigns um, Aideen anything that jumps out for you in the, the morass of well, coverage this morning? I
3: think the morass of coverage is down to one person and unfortunately it's Pascal Donoghue and it's it, you know he, he brought this through the weekend news <coughs> cycle by not dealing with the property during the week in fact the statement he made I think was last Sunday that was actually yes. the first time I heard the story because I mm. you know it's been off living my life over the weekend yeah, so it, so it he been published
1: in got... some outlets on Saturday afternoon. The Phoenix had it uh, on the Thursday or Friday of last week so it's about 10 days old but Pascal Donoghue kind of a- almost brought into the mainstream what was to that point a fairly he minor story.
3: out the gate to use the gate word again and he responded really quickly and dealt with it and actually th- like three sentences into that statement I could feel myself glazing over going oh my god what is this you know and I thought that's the way to handle it but then he's kind of left open this information vacuum which is being filled today by the discussions in the paper and I suppose the thing about it is is you can look at this two ways you can look at this as just a Leinster House media bubble story or you can kind of have a look at what it means it's not even mm. really about posters anymore or about the amounts and that will be dealt with by SIPO but actually um, my Irish Times colleague Harry McGee was um, on, on the Inside Politics podcast discussing the the way election expenses are filed and it sounds bizarre and inconsistent and bitty and you know basically they write down their election expenses they fill it out on a form longhand they submit it it mm. gets uploaded and scanned and so you control these vast yeah. lists mm. but it's not clear you know like some parties will pay centrally for posters so everyone's kind of talking about Mary Fitzpatrick's because uh, she was in the same constituency yeah. and she spent five So So she, she
1: logged €4,920 on the spending of posters or the mounting and removal of posters in the same constituency in the same election but sometimes the the posters are paid for or booked through party headquarters and they don't appear itemized on a candidate's list which makes it hard to compare
3: so it's it's, it's just really about how i think the opaque the whole system like it's it's really difficult to get your head around but you know th- I, the point of it is that we don't want a british system where Corporates can make, donate millions and not mm. have or to an declare a system
0: it. like that. Yeah, you know, and so well, like-
1: we d- we don't. We have a situation where you have to, uh, if a corporation, uh, and this this is a nuance which which maybe isn't uh, fully respected in, in some coverage today. Um, corporate donors, of course, are companies rather than people. But if a con- if a company wants to donate more than two hundred euro to any political candidate or to a party, they have to be pre registered, and very few people do. So there's very few people who actually have permission to donate, very few companies, I should say, who have very little permission to donate any more than 200 euro to anyone in any given year. So by and large, the culture of, of political donations has been eradicated in Ireland. But I suppose the problem with this story is that it indicates that maybe the rules that were supposed to do that aren't always abided by or fit for purpose. Or
3: right. are transparent. And, and and then the whole thing about Michael Stone, who's this businessman and there's no suggestion there's anything underhand here. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he was appointed um, in 2017, a year after the general election to the board of a land development agency. I, I, I understand he waived those, that fee he would yes, have paid yeah, like 15, about €15,000. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't get paid that. But it is a powerful role in a housing crisis. And so people, you know, want to ask some mm. questions. And, I guess this is why we need to have this out in the open.
1: Yeah, and him being the chair of the North East Inner City Task Force, which is a, a body within Pascal whose own constituency, is also a role that grants him a lot of face time with the minister and indeed with successive Taoiseach as well. And maybe some people would find that as maybe the, the, the benefit or, or the perceived benefit of having the sort of relationship that he did. Um, Gina, there, there are two ways of looking at this. Firstly, there's the side that this is, only highlights the inadequacy or the unenforceability of our ethics laws that Ireland has tried to clamp down on um, private funding of politics in such a way and that maybe this is an example of how it hasn't been as successful as we might like to think. By the way, the recipient of the donations in this case also being the minister responsible for the ethics regime is n- not a great look either. On the other side, you, you can look at the, the actual numbers involved and the seemingly inadvertent nature of the omission and wonder whether it's all a bit of a storm in a teacup.
0: And and I think it's possible to think both at the same time. I think Well, I was just going to say that and storm in a teacup is the phrase that keeps coming up and in fact in the Sunday Independent my editor Alan English uses that in his discussion of it as well because it is a little bit of a slow news cycle here in January and yet, and yet... The question of transparency, the system, it originated in this filing in 2016 with the developer and an in-kind donation for posters. Was it an adequate amount? Was it not an adequate amount? And then the drip drip, drip feed of response from the Minister of Public Expenditures himself, who largely in the time that I've lived in this country when I've met him, had seemed like an absolute fantastic stand-up guy. And yet he finds himself in a situation, as I was reading, that reminds me a lot about Joe Biden and the growing cache of classified documents. Mm. Once there's this little sniff under the bonnet or the hood, depending on your point of view, come forward. Talk about it. Share everything hmm. that you've got. Give all those different nuances, which I think well, he did try well, to well, ultimately... Well, imagine that that's what
1: Pascal Donner who tried to do last but Sunday. That,
0: but yes, but and then answer the questions, try to find a way to tighten up the, the legislation and the, the laws around the ethics and the, and the donations, because it is certainly, I think, in this country much better than the way that has gone absolutely amok in the United States when mm. it comes to corporates being treated as people and the limits not even being in existing yeah. over there for the campaign donation. So I think there's a great time to tie this up ride the wave. I don't think this is going to topple the government. I don't think it's going to topple his chances as being a Taoiseach as long as he continues Mm. to handle it in the way that at least finally it seems as if he would. And yeah. over on the other side of the pond, Mr. Biden, if there's any more documents, please just let just us all them. know now.
1: Uh, I do really admire your way of always bringing it back to, to matters on the other if side of the a Atlantic. US it's, book it's, I'm going to find it. It's, it's really <laughs> artfully done. Um, to, to bring it back to this side of the ocean for a second, um, Aideen, um, uh, the papers are, are in something of a void because it's now recognized that. Pascal Donoghue has found something about his 2020 campaign that needs disclosure. He hasn't told us what that is and maybe he's still working to try and get to the full bottom of any uh, non-disclosures or irregularities there may be and that's why we don't know. Is there a slight credibility problem though now for Pascal Donoghue in that last Sunday he said, oh no, this this postering issue in 2016 is the only thing that hadn't been fully accounted for and I've resolved that now and I'm I'm a bit mortified but that's that done now. And he gave a press conference in Brussels on Monday night and he said, yeah, no, we've looked at everything else and we're all grand. And now it comes out at the end of the week that actually not, not everything is grand and that there's more he needs to find. It sort of means that you can't necessarily take him at face value when he says anything like this again in the future.
3: Yeah, I think Pascal Donahue has always had this reputation as Gina was saying, the stand-up guy, prudent Pascal, you know, fair dealer, etc. And so it, it probably does damage his credibility somewhat. And the, opposition are making hay with it because, you know, it's it's great to land a blow on someone who they have been able to touch for years. But also, you know, there is this politically toxic sort of element to it in that, I suppose... there's kind of a, a consent and you would know this Gavin there's kind of this consensus that if Pascal went <laughs> that's the end of the yeah, coalition Yeah there's a perception
1: that he's some sort of like load-bearing pillar uh, which <laughs> well, like, he's a very significant figure within the coalition but I'm not sure that he's any less expendable than any other minister who might have an infraction along the way
3: Yeah I don't know I think he he is kind of one of the, 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 the supporting walls as it were but it, it's it's just The particularly Sinn Féin I heard them landing quite a few blows during the week that landed mm. um, I think I heard um um, Peter Burke from Fine Gael and McCarthy from Sinn Féin on the radio during the week and uh, like anything that Peter Burke tried to come back with it just, just didn't it went you know it went over most people's heads I think mm. and so it is an opportunity for Sinn Féin to really attack Pascal's yeah. credibility
1: um, just fi- find a word on this uh, Gina so the reason why we don't know what the current situation is with Pascal who about 2020 appears to be and this is the, the what we learned from the papers today that he is going through everything with a fine tooth comb to make sure that when he does his next disclosure that it's the most comprehensive one. Trying to take your advice really, the Joe Biden advice of just put it all out there and bore people. It actually reminds me a little bit of Arnie Vinnick in season seven of the West Wing doing <laughs> his press conference outside the the nuclear station basically until people get bored and then he goes, right, I've answered everything now. Uh, little nerd insert. Um, but that means in a situation that we're sort of dealing with this kind of void where we don't know how extensive or not the problems of 2020 are and, and that in itself then means that the longer the void goes on, Politics it might be harder to pour concrete over. Yeah. And I
0: think it's also something for, as Edine was just saying, for everybody of every other party who hasn't gone through their expenditures and their in-kind donations and, and everything with the fine-tuned comb, they better be getting that comb out of their their pocket now as well, because if I'm a journalist, I'm going through everybody mm. now that I can see that there might be a chance. And just like the Democrats who are cawing over, I'm not saying that Mar-a-Lago, number of classified documents is same as the one in the Corvette-locked garage with Joe Biden, but once you call about one topic on against Mm. the other side if someone finds it on you the public typically do not spend a lot of time comparing the weight of the apple versus the orange and so you need to be very careful
1: Uh, Noble Guardian on Twitter back in touch a regular listener talking about the attack on the Garda in Ballymun Uh, they say that all civic minded people would condemn attacks on those helping to protect life or to safeguard order but such a condemnation is maybe likely to be wasted on those in such a crisis that would lead them to contemplate such actions in the first place perhaps greater training and appropriate police presence at routine call-outs is what is needed, uh, says that person. And there's a few texts about the chat we were having in part one, which I don't want to be too uh, specific about naming because there might be younger listeners who are now back tuned in again. Um, One person simply says that there are some campaigns trying to um, illustrate to people um, that what you see on screens is not always a realistic portrayal. Um, One other texter says that maybe there should be some sort of very discreet educational adverts uh, saying what's realistic and not, and to make clear that what they're seeing on the screen is actually acting a variety of texts and tweets coming in about the Pascal Donohu controversy uh, Hugh says that regardless of what people think of Pascal Donahue, all politicians should be held to the same standards and held accountable for spending and donations any senior minister would face similar scrutiny and there are still many questions to be answered and Eamon says that the Pascal, Pascal Donoghue controversy is no longer about posters. It's about the benefits that the businessman who paid for it received following the donations. Stop playing this down, Gav Riley on the Record NT. I don't know if that is directed at me specifically, but if it is, then you can't win them all because I've spent most of the week being criticised on Twitter for making a mountain out of a molehill by talking about it so much on the news on Virgin Media. So... You know, each to their own. Um, I don't think we are um, playing it down, but also I don't think you can say for certain that the businessman did derive benefits because the company involved is a a very significant operator in the engineering world anyway. And you can't say for certain that there was anything untoward about it winning contracts of the size that it did. I'm sure any other company of a comparable size might easily have won uh, the same number of things anyway. Um, Someone else just texted in just this moment saying Fine doesn't need a PR agency because it has news talk. Again, you really can't win. You you really absolutely cannot win. Uh, 11.52, still a few minutes to talk about some of the other matters in the papers with Jean London and Nadine Finnegan. Um, Quite a bit in the papers today about the various um, health protests uh, yesterday. I don't know who wants to take the lead on that and whether this is the the sign of anything more significant. I'm not seeing either of you coming up with volunteers. This
0: this is one of these stories, again, as, as the outsider moving into this country, one of the first things that hit me was... People waiting on trolleys for days at a time, which is just the most jaw-dropping thing that I, frankly, have ever heard of. And now you've got 11,000 people in Limerick coming out to protest yesterday about the university hospital. And that there's now only one 24-7 emergency room department for 500,000 people. Are you kidding me? Uh. I mean, this woman who apparently is the head of of the group that was leading the protest today, Melanie Cleary, standing up before the crowd talking about how her 21-year-old daughter Eve died on a trolley in in 2019, waiting for treatment. How many of these stories do we have to hear before there is a real overhaul of a system that, frankly, people, individuals, are terrific. Hmm. Consultants are terrific. Nurses are very lovely. I've heard the stories and, and one anecdote after another, especially during the time of lockdown and COVID and the extra pressure put on these these health professionals. But my goodness, in the time of technology, as we were just talking about, that can write college students papers, isn't there a system of triage or treatment or something that can be added into the system in a small country like Ireland that can make it serve its people in a better way mm. than what is currently provided?
1: Uh, I wonder whether it might be related to the wave of protests that there's been across the weekend. I've just pulled up the HSE's uh, trolley gar figures uh, this morning and actually the number of people on trolleys in the emergency department in UL, which any listener will know is constantly the one which is held up as being the worst performer. Um, in the last couple of days, I've never known it to be so low. There's never been any more than eight or nine people on trolleys in the ED in Limerick for the last 48 hours. AD, which How
3: is that possible? Well,
1: if, if it's been possible for the last couple it, of days, you exactly. wonder why not more sustainably?
3: Absolutely. What's going on there?
1: Um, really remarkable so this morning's figures are that there are nine people on trolleys in the emergency department four of them have been there for over nine hours uh, none of them over the crucial 24 hours and that has been consistent over the last um, three or four days if you go back over the figures so it's really quite remarkable now granted um, there have been um, testimony at the Euroctus Health Committee this week from the HSE which says that some of the measures rolled out in the last couple of days uh, are not or last couple of weeks rather are not sustainable people are being asked to work hours that they couldn't possibly do all the time so maybe some of the extra measures being deployed uh, aren't sustainable long term but evidently something is working and then you wonder um, why it can't be done or some measures of that can't be done more permanently um, I've just received another tweet from somebody who's replying to the coverage that I've done on Virgin Media News about the past Donovan controversy <laughs> telling me it's a storm in a teacup uh, you really can't win uh, 11.55 we've got a couple more minutes to talk about a story on page 17 of the Mail on Sunday museum chiefs have stopped using the word mummy To describe remains of ancient Egyptians. Why is that, Aideen?
3: Do you know, I can already hear how this is being framed. It's just PC gone mad. Culture wars. Oh, my God. So, uh, the British Museum uh, is saying that it wants to use the term mummified uh, Mm -mm. remains rather than mummy because it's dehumanising because basically people are coming in looking at a body and it was a person, Mm. albeit, you know, 600 years BC or what have you. Uh, So, and then there's obviously the pushback from um, other... uh, I suppose what feeds into this as well is the legacy of colonialism and why, <laughs> why these remains are in yeah, British why museums. In the first place? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of countries. There's Nigeria, there's India. They're looking for a lot of stuff back from mm. the British Museum. And it is interesting Greece. to see
0: the, the, them take this. Um...
1: Gina, I, I literally have five seconds for a pithy one liner in response to all this, if you'd like. <laughs> keep it.
0: the movies named and keep Brendan Fraser. Excellent. Gina London, Adrian <laughs> Finnegan, thank you both very much
1: for, for that and all the other insights. On the record with Gavin Riley,
0: Sunday morning at eleven. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions. It all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.